0: He has uh, a new shoe out, he's, of course, partnered with Under Armour. And uh, the shoe is called the Curry Golden Flow. That's not a good name. That's just not a good name for uh, a shoe. It's pretty because, you know, the color, white, and then there's a gold there, and he's Golden State in the Golden Flow. I want to know what name you decided not to use if you go Golden Flow. Yes, Paulie?
1: If you wear them, you're in the playoffs. You're in.
0: You're, 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 yeah, in. you're in the
1: playoffs. Oh. Uh, oh, see what I did with that, Todd? Come on, Todd. I, I think we're being – there's no way someone would – like th- they had the meeting, and, and the boss goes, you know, Golden Flow, I like that name. No one stood up and said, this is ripe for being made fun of. Nobody hmm. brought their hand up.
0: Like you can do Golden, but Flow? But you know what happened, though, Todd? Somebody leaked this to me. Oh, and I, oh. wow. <laughs> When you go to when you go to the website of that company, uh, there's a huge golden flow graphic. And then the quote feels better than ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kyle in California. Hey, Kyle, what's on your mind today?
1: Under Armour golden
0: flow. That, that's piss poor. I don't like it at all. <laughs> share the love with
2: people and I mean by that is bonus them if you can give them rope to make not all people they have to prove themselves but to make decisions so they can see that that was my idea I'm gonna see it through let people be part of the adventure and don't put all the weight on your own shoulders by giving people adventure you're also getting the weight off of your shoulders a bit I remind our franchises, these businesses evolve and change. The only thing that hasn't changed in our business is a piano is still damn heavy. Now this is interesting. Every franchise had their own server and their own computer. And the important thing about franchising is ships are safe in port, but that's not what ships were built for. And I went, oh, that's good. That is really good. I wrote that down and I went, that's what this business is. We're a ship in port. We got to get out in deep blue water, man. I'm Briggs Sorber, one of the original two men of Two Men in a Truck, along with my brother John. I am 56 years old, and I am speaking out of our corporate office in Lansing, Michigan. And so what's your position with Two Men in a Truck? I am the executive chair, currently held, I think, every possible position with this company except for finance, because I don't understand it. You know, it started out as the original mover, a driver. I was a franchisee. I was in franchise development. I was an FBC Franchise business consultant, i go and travel and help the franchises grow their businesses. From there, I was in the vice president role, became president and CEO for a number of years and have really brought up some leadership underneath me that are now in the position of president and CEO. And so we're a privately held company. I'm out of the day-to-day right now, but still the dollar ends at my desk. So I'm still involved in meetings here at the corporate office. And I do a lot of speaking with our franchisees and with our frontline people.
1: And how old are you today? I am 56. Yeah, so I guess at 56, did you think you'd be in this position of two men in a truck? Absolutely not. Looking back, when my brother and I started
2: two men in a truck back in the early 80s, it was really about making uh, beer and book money for college. But there was something about the business we really loved. John and I would call ourselves uh, pleasers. We started in an industry that was actually quite easy to please. I mean, just show up and do what you say you're going to do and be careful and considerate. Things just started growing my mom was watching all this happen from our kitchen table until my brother and I went off to college. She asked if she could hire a couple of guys and keep it going, which we were all for. That's what she did. She eventually would franchise the business. And then all of us kids, myself, my brother, John, my sister, Melanie were all franchisees, which was a blessing because it allowed us to really understand the inner workings of our business and franchising. So to think that we would be at this stage now is shocking. I mean, we have 360 locations in the U.S., 29 in Canada, two in the U.K., and one in Ireland. We are doing about three moves of every minute, of every hour, of every day. So to think that I'd be here at age 56, being a geography major from Northern Michigan University, not taking a single business class, yep, I'd say I'm borderline shocked.
1: (laughs) Well, the important question, I guess, how did you get that franchise set up in Ireland? Well, I don't know. First of all, we like the beer. So we thought, hey, this would be a great opportunity to go there and have beer. Realistically,
2: how that happened was they found us, our franchise in Ireland found us online. They had bought a big storage unit that had a moving company inside, and they tried to run the moving company and could not do it successfully. So they Googled local moving company franchise, and we popped up. We started a relationship and started a franchise there. And the franchises over the pond they're growing. They're quite small, but doing well. And it makes us feel good that we have a process, a brand, a logo that can be transferred to different cultures.
1: You hit on how many franchises. Can you go over that again and how many, they aren't employees necessarily, but I mean, how many people are operating in the business? So again, we get a good overhead view before we reel it back to how you got started.
2: Yeah. We currently have about 360 franchise locations in 45 states in the US. The number of employees will fluctuate the summertime is our busy time. We're probably running anywhere between nine and 10,000 employees right now out of those locations, running about 4,000 trucks. And we will do 680,000 moves this year alone and probably bringing in about $530 million in moving uh, this year.
1: Before we get started with your story, is there any key points that you think that you could share with us that we could understand about your journey? Again, we can come around to it at the end to make sure we hit on all these points, but just curious if someone's interested and they're hearing it right now, like what you think you'd be able to teach everybody from your story and growing Two men in a Truck.
2: Well, I think my lack of financial acumen is actually a bonus for me instead of something negative. I think a lot of businesses people start out, it's all about the money. I think that's a huge mistake. What it's really about is about the people, the people that you bring along with you. They're looking for adventure in their lives too. And we spend most of our waking hours at work. So make sure work is an adventurous place. Take care of those people. Make sure you're having them learning things, growing along with you. Share the adventure of the business. They want adventure in their lives make sure that you're doing that. Make sure that you're taking care of the communities in which you work. And I can give you plenty of examples of that. Make sure that you are also taking care of your vendors. Our goal is to be our vendors, our number one customer. They're another set of eyes for your business. So many people and businesses starting out look at beating up their vendors, taking the most out of their employees that they can. We turn that inside out, try to take care of everybody and let the money come in the back door, not the front door that has worked out well for us. So I think that is one thing I would want to have listeners understand. And also this business is not a reflection of you per se. There's so many people that have businesses that they tie their success and failures personally to these businesses. These businesses are their own entity. They need to grow. Sometimes to allow them to grow, you need to step back and put people that are more maybe more successful. Maybe it is a specific skill set that somebody else is better at than you. Are you willing to take a back seat to your business so it grows? I see a lot of businesses get stuck because they're only going to grow as much as the owner grows. So there's just some things to think about.
1: And again, two minute trick, because we have an international audience, so I just make sure that everyone's on the same page. So if someone needs to move at locations, either house or whatever they call you guys, you come help them move. I imagine you do commercial space as well.
2: Oh yes, we do final mile delivery. We're doing more and more things with large companies uh, doing all their internal moves, even their key employees doing their moves across country. So we're involved in many different types of moving. I'd say our meat and potatoes is the local moving, but we even have value flex. We even have their box containers that look like our trucks that we can actually load somebody up and take them So it's not just using our trucks, but we're also using a container moving as well. So we have opened up a lot of avenues just trying to have services that our customers are asking for. And these things are changing more and more. Like all industries, we have our industry disruptors. I'd say two men in a truck was an industry disruptor 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Now we're starting to see other avenues of moving and we just have to stay on top of those things.
1: So I think we got a good understanding of the general overview. You're a moving company, basically, and understanding that there's more than just moving someone down the street or down a neighborhood that you're saying that there's different types of moving you can do. But in general, people are calling you. It's because they're moving and need help with it. And so do you want to reel it back to, again, you gave us a brief overview when you got started looking here. It looks like maybe you started around 1985 or so. It sounds like this was basically an overnight success, right? No.
2: (laughs) Actually, we incorporated our first Lansing business in 1985. This business really probably started in 1979, if you go way back. And what I tell people is, how does a business start? in the same way as a river. Rivers have many tributaries that that come together to start a river. And our business was kind of like that. And I talk about my tributary. It started with a 66 Ford pickup truck. This was a beater truck that we bought from Michigan State University. as an old agricultural truck. And we initially started using it to move our lawnmowers in. I had a couple of friends of mine that we would mow lawns and we'd haul them behind our bikes. And so when I turned 16 years old, That 66 Ford became my truck. We would haul our lawnmowers. We eventually started hauling yard waste and things to the dump. And so the business kind of got its footing there. I went off to college. My brother's a few years younger than I am. Him and his friends started doing the same thing, his friend's truck. Where the business really started to look like a business is when my mom bought Mary Ellen Sheets, bought a 15-foot step van, again, another beater truck that she would use to go to estate auctions to buy furniture, and then she'd spit shine that furniture up and resell it at a store that she had in downtown Lansing, Michigan. She told us, boys, you can use the truck if you want when I'm not using it. And when we started using that 15-foot truck, that's when we really started doing used furniture deliveries, apartments, and small homes. We called ourselves Men at Work Movers. And underneath that, it said, our ad read, Men at Work Movers, two men in a truck, 25 bucks an hour. It was my mom who said, why don't you drop Men at Work Movers and call yourselves who you are? two men in the truck. So that's where our name came from. The logo came from, we would take $3 of every move that we would make, and we would put it in a candy dish that belonged to my great, great aunt. Actually, this dish still sits on my desk to this day. And my mom, kind of as a joke, on a napkin with a Sharpie marker, drew a cartoon truck with two stick men in it to represent my brother and myself. And she taped that onto that candy dish. That is the logo that we use to this day. So that's where our logo came from. That's where our name came from. John and I were small guys. But we were hard workers. The referrals just kept coming in from that hard work. To this day, referrals are key to us and we track every move that we do. We'll do six hundred and eighty thousand moves this year. And every one of those moves will get a reply card or an email sent to them asking how we did, how we can get better. So some of those things that started in our roots are still with us.
1: And the jar you said you put three dollars for every move into it. Yeah. So what was that for? That was for our first ad in a local paper, which is still here, called uh, Town
2: Courier. And that's the ad that we would run, men at work, movers, two men in a truck, 25 bucks an hour. It's funny because now our national ad alone, just the national ad loan is $6 million a year. So, But it all started with that candy dish. If you come to our corporate office, Austin, you will see a lot of that old memorabilia stuff that we still have around. We have a 66 Ford pickup truck that the original one's long gone, but we found a replica of it. Had it restored, that sits on a cement slab in front of our corporate office, just as a reminder of where we came from.
1: No, I think it's important to have those kind of reminders or anything where you can look back because I find a lot of people, they're on the computers now for work all the time. But having the physical things to be able to see like that, I think kind of helps you, again, new employees, they can see actually how you started. It's not like, hey, you started by buying a brand new truck and we're moving right when you came out of college. It's true. The window of my office overlooks that truck and I get a kick
2: out of it. And we have interns that will pile in the back of it and get their picture taken. New franchisees, old franchisees, we're always having their picture taken in front of it. It's just a reminder. When I first bought this truck, I mean, this replica, when I went to pick it up in Northern Wisconsin, in my mind, this was a huge truck because I drove it in high school. This truck is not big at all. And you realize it had power, nothing. Drum brakes, AM radio, no power steering. You are off the grid. It's kind of like a tractor, if anything. Just a reminder of how far things have gone. I remind our franchises, these businesses evolve and change. The only thing that hasn't changed in our business is a piano is still damn heavy, <laughs> regardless of when we moved it When as high schoolers, they're removing it now. So it's changed from marketing to finance,
1: the operations. It's crazy. This company you said it started in 79, so basically about a 40 year old company, huh? Yeah, gosh. Gotcha. Thanks for aging me there. You're welcome. (laughs) So yes, why don't we jump back in there when you started, you know, you had this pickup truck and just walk us through those first couple of years as far as how much money you were able to make and realizing if this was going to be your full-time gig.
2: Oh my gosh, we were making 25 bucks an hour back in the, you know, the early to mid 80s. Not a lot of overhead. I mean, we ran the thing off our kitchen table. I always look at it as uh in high school, you know, we'd also drink beer in the back of that truck. Can't do that back now, but back then and I was drinking green bottle beer. I was drinking moosehead, I was drinking Heineken, my friends were drinking Falstaff and Buckhorn. So it was like, hey, this is pretty good. But as the business grew, we never looked at this thing like it'd be anything serious. It kept us from Back then, it was hard to even get a job at McDonald's. But for us, it gave us freedom, and that's what we loved about it. Every job was different. We loved the people that we were moving, and some of the moves were sad. I mean, some of it was divorce or moving someone into assisted living, and little did I know, but you know, we were honing our craft on on communicating with people because some of these moves would go smooth, some were tough. And so we became very good at reading people. We enjoyed watching people trust us. At first, they didn't, and then they did. My brother and I, being small, we'd walk in, and they would drop their head and shoulders. And it's like, oh, crap, here we go again. You know, is there a problem, ma'am? No, we were just expecting a couple scrapping lads, and we got you guys. I was totally understand. I'll tell you. Give us 15 minutes, and if you don't think we can do it, we'll call the office and get bigger guys. Well, that's fair. You know, so my brother and I would go down into the basement. We'd go to that freezer. I call it the black hole because if a pen or a matchbox car went under it, nobody would ever see it again because nobody could move the freezer. Well, John and I move these all the time. So we'd move that thing out of the basement, up into the truck, throw a lazy boy over our shoulder, walk out with that. And by that time, they were like, we are so sorry. We had no clue. We shouldn't have said anything. It's like, "No, no, that's fine. That's okay." And we loved it cuz it usually meant a good tip because they felt guilty. But the funny part was, there was no office. There was no other guys. It was just us. So nobody ever called us out on it. But, you know, just part of the history. I went to school to Northern Michigan University for forestry, ended up with a geography degree in urban planning and land use regulation. Realized by the time I was into my 400-level classes, I did not want to do this, but had to get out of school. I never took a business class. My brother, he went to school. I think he got a business minor, but he was looking at becoming a police officer. So it was like we weren't geared really towards business. My sister, too, was a marketing major from Central Michigan University. This business kind of grew with us. It wasn't anything that we had whiteboarded out. We just kind of grew it, fed it, learned, and just kept the ball rolling. Hey, guys. Rain Modi here, CEO and founder of Hawk Packaging and ZipFox.com. You can catch me on episode 145. I'm sharing the story of how I started my business with just 75 bucks and I grew it all the way to over a million in revenue in just a couple years. Austin and I just had a talk and we were discussing the same thing, how to start a business with 500 bucks or less, the types of businesses that work best, how to do it, what resources you need to use. All of it is there. If you want to check out that episode, hop on over to the Patreon feed. You got to become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there.
1: I really wanted to like have a small membership where I can have a community because long-term that's going to help everybody else out more.
0: In all honesty, I feel like you could even charge more. To be honest, I would have spent a lot more. Don't charge me more now,
1: (laughs) but- (laughs) I'm feeling, uh, yeah.
0: I would have spent a lot more. Some of these meetup groups that I go to, they charge like $50 a swing and, and there's not even a lunch or anything provided. Just a one-time meetup where this is, you know, a monthly thing with a lot of benefits and a lot of great connections. I mean, for someone like myself, I feel like if I met one person over the next year, you know, it brought me a tremendous amount of value. And I think you're selling it too cheap almost. <laughs> I mean, all no, honestly, Mary said that she had the whole you know, thing that sparked this conversation is I guess she had a marketing company on. And now they're helping her. They got her in Asbury Park Press, which is a local paper here. But she did like over $15,000 in business just off of them getting her in that article. And they've also gotten her in a ton of other things. I mean, she said, you know, listen, it was one phone call for $15 a month. It already brought me over $15,000 worth of gross return. I mean, that's just tremendous value in my opinion. If I can even get a fraction of value like that out of any of these calls, I mean, it would be worth $100 a month to me at this point, you know?
1: Even the first couple of years where everything going well, because again, you're saying make twenty five bucks an hour. I don't know if that's forty hours a week, or can you give us an idea of? It sounds like you were doing better than some of your friends financially, at least coming out, even just being a quote unquote mover.
2: Yeah, obviously this was before college, because my friends all passed me up after college. They had business degrees. A lot of them started out working for GM and other large companies. But you know, for us, it was real hit and miss starting out. You know, there was some weeks we'd work sixty hours, or some weeks we'd work maybe fifteen or twenty. When you have a new business, it just doesn't slowly scale, goes up and down and you just have to be flexible with it. You know, when we weren't working, we weren't crying. We were high school kids. So we had other things we do during the summer, but people kept calling, the referrals kept coming in more and more. And finally, we went to college. My mom took it over. She quit her job at the state of Michigan. She was there for 23 years. You have to understand something. She was 46 years old. She was divorced, did not have a college education. Her own mother, my grandma said she was crazy. My mom worked two years without paying herself anything. She lived on ramen noodles. She cashed in all of her qualified money from the state of Michigan. If you ask her, she'll say it was the best time of my life. I tell her she's crazy. But she loved growing the business. And then the business just didn't make any money. So all of us kids had to go out after college and make our own living. And then we eventually came back to two men in the truck. And we all ended up being franchisees once we started franchising. And my wife and I started with the Marquette Michigan franchise, which was by far to this day the smallest franchise ever of two men in a truck moving out of a population of about sixty-five thousand people we ran it out of our living room but i tell our frontline staff i said there's advantages of running the smallest franchise ever because you wear a lot of hats i was a mover i was a driver i was a customer service rep i hired people fired people i did estimates on jobs i learned a lot from that where if you start with a large franchise maybe you don't get a chance to wear all those hats and then eventually I was called by my sister and my mom to help to move back to Lansing, Michigan and help them run and restructure our franchise system. And when I moved back, we had about 42 franchises at the time. So what I tell people, especially our frontline staff is that any job that you have, there's something to learn from it. And don't look at it as poor me, I'm stuck in this miserable job, it's like, what can you learn from it? And what can you use that to parlay for your next job? So learning all those operational things on the trucks, I became franchise development. and so. I brought in new franchises.
1: Well, can I pause you there real quick? Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, because I want to make sure we have a total clarity on the situation. So basically, you and your brother were doing this in high school, you go to college, and that's when your mom quit her job, and she saw the opportunity that y'all had made a name for yourself, like two-minute truck. So she was just going to make two-minute truck when she quit her job, and so she was doing that at home while you were at college and everything? Right. Right. Okay. And then you said she was not making any money doing it because so I guess she was having to hire people instead of using you guys, where you obviously cost less, I assume.
2: Well, it's also too, Austin, is that she's plowing new roads. I mean, uh, if you take a look at the moving industry, it's typically not a woman's industry, not knowing any of the rules and regulations. I mean, John and I, when we ran it, we were just under the wire. Nobody really paid any attention to us. When Too Truck Lansing started to grow, some of the other moving companies looked at us as a threat. We didn't realize it, but we were supposed to be licensed. And uh, so the state police showed up at my mom's door. She almost was arrested for doing illegal moves. And we didn't even know what that meant. So when you're starting a business, many times you're on the bleeding edge of it. You're getting bloody noses and fat lips, learning as you go. And so the reason why I didn't make money up front was we'd have to go back and get an attorney. We'd have to go back and get licensed. So we had to get the right equipment so these are all things that we were doing and learning and growing. But when you're learning and growing, a lot of times you're not making any money. And that's one of the reasons I say it was more important to grow the business than it was to make the money, as long as we could pay the bills. I mean, the thing when my mom had it, it was just covering the bills. When we first started franchising, our new franchisees weren't making much money either. And so we're learning as we're going. And looking back on it now, we probably worked really 10 years without really just covering itself. But you take a look at that business and you look at it as its own entity, its own baby. And it's like, how can we make this better? How can we work it? And once we started getting numbers of franchises, it started to help our buying power. We started getting smarter. My mom said, all of us are smarter than one of us. And so sharing those ideas, lessons learned with some of our early franchises, then it really started to get some traction.
1: I'm trying to figure out your age as far as like you said, you started your own franchise from your mom. I imagine that you're a couple of years out of school. It sounds like you grabbed a job for a little bit and then decided you want to be a mover again. Well, no, joking.
0: <laughs> what
2: happened was my wife and I, we got married and had a baby right out of college. And when I graduated from Northern Michigan University. I weighed 170 pounds. It was during a recession back in 1986. So I worked for Two Truck. I also loaded trucks for Spartan Distributing. It was a beer distributorship. And I also loaded trucks at the Meyer Thrifty Acre Warehouse, uh, which is a supermarket in the Midwest. I went from 170 pounds down to 135 pounds, doing everything I could because I wanted my wife to stay home with our baby. And it was one of the toughest times in my life, but it was good for me. I wouldn't change any of it. Eventually, I just got tired of working with my back and I became an insurance agent. Started out in Lansing and then I took over an agency up in the Upper Peninsula outside of Marquette, Michigan. And, you know, we scratched a living there. I was there for about six years. My wife and I started Two Man Truck. My last two years I was with the insurance company. They weren't very happy with it. They thought it was going to pull me away from the insurance business, which it didn't because I had a lot of help from my wife. Then I eventually quit the insurance business and just jumped in full-time with two men in the truck. But remember, it was one truck, we were running in and out of our house. My wife thought I was crazy. But I immediately got a second truck and I just worked on the trucks. That was when I was probably 26 years old. And I did that until I was about 32 years old. So I was working on the trucks. I was marketing the franchises on the phone in the evenings. And my wife went teaching high school. So finance at the high school. So kind of piecemealed our lives together. And I tell my kids, the frontline people that, you know, our 20s were difficult as they should be. That's when you're putting in sweat equity. You're trying to figure things out. You're trying to learn. It's not for us. It wasn't making money as it was just surviving I mean we lived hand-to-mouth during those times our house was a $15,000 house in the Upper Peninsula we bought a house that had been abandoned for a while we fixed it we slowly fixed it up they were tough times when I got in my 30s it got better and I'm gonna tell you Austin every decade I get into it's better and better but I try to tell my kids I tell uh, our employees life is not like a Michelob light commercial or a corona commercial when, when you're in your 20s Typically, you're not skinny, good-looking, and, and working for a, in a major city uh, at a, for a major corporation. I mean, it's, it makes for a nice commercial, but it's not reality. Twenties is about hard work. It's about ass-kicking, and it's about learning, and it's about pounding the rock every day. Twenties will make you who you are, I think. So, and that's no different than it was for us starting this business.
1: You're saying during 26 to 32 is kind of when you did your own franchise and your mom had about 40 franchises at that point? Yeah, my sister was the
2: president at that time. Melanie was the first franchise that we had other than the Lansing franchise in Atlanta, Georgia. My mom was asked to run for a state Senate seat. So when she did that, she made Melanie, my sister, the president. So Melanie sold her franchise and moved back to Michigan. She called me and said, I need your help. Mom's getting out. I need you in house here. So that's when Fran and I sold our house and our business. And we had three kids at the time and moved back to Lansing, Michigan, probably at the age of 32 at that time.
1: Just so everyone knows, like, this is about two hours outside Detroit, so I guess people get a better idea of where it is in the Michigan geography. The thing I'm curious about here is just, we don't have to get too far in depth because it might get a little boring too, but it's just like, financially, how are y'all dividing this all up with your family? Because it's weird that you're a franchisee, and then they're telling you to come back and that you have to then sell franchises, and then your sister's coming back. Like It seems like everyone's moving in and out of the family, pun intended, with the moving. Yeah,
2: great question. Melanie took over as president, not making anything for a year. Melanie was single. She was in in pharmaceutical sales before that. So she had a bit of a a nest egg there. My brother was called in to run the Lansing franchise. So really my brother was paid from running the Lansing franchise and he had two franchises in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So that's how he was getting paid. I got paid by the time I moved back to Lansing as an FBC, as a franchise business consultant. So I got paid a little bit doing the consulting work there. And by that time, we were generating enough money. So there was a little bit there. And then also with marketing the franchises, when I awarded a franchise, I was paid from that. So there was little revenues, little streams of money coming out of two men in a truck at that time. But it, was, it wasn't it was much. And then you have to understand, too, our corporate office was made up of about maybe eight people at the time. We've got a little over 200 people at our corporate office now. So a lot of us wore multiple hats at the time. We were very operational. And we were getting these, you know, as we added new franchises, it added to our royalty stream. That's kind of how we got going.
1: The money coming in, you get money from franchises, like selling those. And then also, I guess, the actual moving fees for whatever, which ones y'all actually ended up owning. Right. Right. Yep. You get a
2: franchise fee when somebody becomes a franchise, they pay a franchise fee. That would help pay me. And then it would give us startup money to get these franchises going. These franchises, I tell them this, when you start out, I tell them that you guys are infants, you're babies. I mean, you don't produce anything. We got to clean your diaper. It's going to take us probably two years before you bring any financial value back to us. We know that. And so basically what we're doing with new franchises is building their trust, sharing the things that work and the things that don't work, and, and getting them up and going, getting them out of that two to three trucks to in them to eight, 10, 15, 20, 30 trucks. So it takes a little time to do that. But we knew that in the beginning, it's very expensive to have somebody start out and then fail. So we poured a lot of our resources into these new franchises to get them up and going.
1: And you said when you came back, you were thirty-two years old. Do you know about what year it was when you moved back?
2: Moved back in nineteen ninety-six.
1: Okay, so it's ninety-six. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about when you moved back, how your roles changing? Walk us through what business is like then, because obviously, again, it's a lot different today. How everything works. So I'm trying to, in my mind to understand, like, how is two men in a truck growing? What's the day-to-day operations like for you? Just walk us through a little bit of that. Oh my gosh, yeah.
2: Well, you have to understand, it's before the internet. Right. So a lot of the uh, franchise development, I would go to franchise shows. These shows would be put on in different parts of the country. So I'd pack up all of our swag stuff and information, and I'd go sit in these uh, franchise shows. We'd do two or three of those a year. We'd put ads in franchise magazines. Our franchisees, they would call in with issues. We did this right from the beginning. Whenever a franchise called in, we would type out what's called a call report. And so the call report would say which franchise it was, why they called in, what their issue was, and what are we doing about it. And then we would type these all up and then we would print them. And then we put a sheet of paper on them with everyone's name at the corporate office so they could read them all. So we had mailboxes that all these call reports would go into. And so like. I don't know, once or twice a week, you get all those call reports out and see what's up with these franchises, what's going on. All franchise sales were done over the phone. They would send in. Now, this is interesting, Austin, is every franchise had their own server and their own computer. And the important thing about franchising is consistency. And so we had to make sure that the move sheet or the pre-move letter that go out to the customer that came from the franchises, they all look the same. Well, we found out a lot of times they didn't. People would make up their own and that would cause a lot of problems. Truck lettering was an issue. We had Circle R, we had our logo, our name registered, but you get a franchise that I use a different font for the name, or they're using a yellow truck instead of a white truck. I mean, it was hell. That's one of the things we'd have to go, we check these franchises, we have to take a look at their paperwork, make sure they look the same. Did you enjoy doing that? Oh, hell no. <laughs>
1: I know. I imagine it'd be a bitch to deal with. It was a bitch. Yeah, because you're like babysitting these people that how simple was it to follow this stuff and then they're not. Yeah. And some of them, you would
2: know, immediately like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that. It's like, well, yeah, you got to get on that, you know, and then some of them were like, no, it doesn't work here. And so it wasn't always their fault because no one really knew what franchising was back then. We were franchising a service which was, which was relatively new. Most franchises back then were restaurants It had something to do with food. So how we brought franchises in had to change. We had to educate them more. Franchisees in general are not entrepreneurs. And some of your readers would say, that's bullshit. They're entrepreneurs. It's like, no, no, they're not. We're going to tell you what paperwork you're going to use. We're going to tell you what your trucks are going to look like. We're going to tell you a lot of different things. Now, can you be an entrepreneurial within the franchise system? Yeah. I mean, we have some franchises that are sparkling and doing great, and we have some that struggle. So there's some people that are They can be better at business than other ones, but franchisees in general are not entrepreneurial. I'll go as far as to say this, Austin. My mom is entrepreneurial. She's the one that franchised this thing. She's the one that came up with the logo. I'm actually not entrepreneurial. I'm more of a systems guy, a consistency guy. So I worked well with my mom because she would come out with these great things and then I would come behind her and put processes to them. When I became president of Two Men in a Truck, People would circumvent me and they would go to my mom or they'd go to my sister and say, we want to do this. We want to do that. And I, they would do it on purpose because they know I'd say no. So it was kind of a joke, you know, that I have to put a fence around my mom. So because my mom would go as an entrepreneur, I would go entrepreneur would go, that's a great idea. We should do that. It's like, no, mom, we can't do that. So there were some of those times that we're learning and growing and we found out what a really good franchisee is. And as Americans, we have it in us to be entrepreneurial. So we have to explain to people that are become franchisees, look, we'll be able to scream louder, have a farther reach, do more things if we work together as opposed instead of working independently. And so we got that message across. The franchises, for the most part, agreed to that. But here's the issue when you talk about technology is when we would make a change. Now, at this time, we've got maybe, let's say uh, we are in, I don't know, 2005, 2004. We've got 120 franchises or so. They all still have their own servers. And so we would make a change and we'd have to send a disc out to all the franchises to upload these on their servers. Well, and then you find out some of our franchises' servers are old. They couldn't handle the information being sent to them. Some of the franchises wanted to run new stuff. It was a goat rodeo. And so during the recession, we had to come up with a whole new operating system. And we tried to buy it out of the box. It was impossible. So we came up with our own Movers Who Care 2 software system. It put all of our franchises on one single platform. That was hell. It was telling franchises during a recession that you have to dump all your computers and get new ones. Our own corporate office wasn't set up properly. So we had to work on that. It gave me high blood pressure, which I have to this day, but we eventually got it done. And so now if we have a change in marketing or a change in our move letter, We can send it and it downloads on everyone's computers. And it took us years to do that. It took us millions of dollars to do that. But to me, Austin, that's franchising. We know how many rings each franchise, on average, it takes them to pick up the phone. We know how much every franchise spends on oil, on tires, you name it. We have so much data that we can take a look at it. We know when a franchise is struggling before they do. When we first did this, we had some franchises say, you're big brother, you know, we don't like this. But when they found out that, no, we're on your team. If you do better, we do better. They started realizing that, no, this is a bonus. And so there's very few franchises systems worldwide that are set up like we are, that we are so tied to our franchises. And before we got on this call, you said, wow, why do you have all that recording equipment there? That's crazy. It's like, because we are all about communicating with those franchises, making sure that they're successful, sharing information that's working with the franchises. So technology has been something that we have, And we know it's paying dividends for us right now.
1: Yeah, because I wanted to jump again, because you've been in it for quite a while with Two Minute in a Truck, jump to certain points that you think were crucial in the business, either positively or negatively. Do you want to talk about this a little bit more as far as, I mean, it sounds like it was not fun. And I was going to ask how long it took, but you said it took a couple of years to get all these franchisees on this software or on the same server. Can you tell us about developing this software first and trying to foresight on, hey, we need to do this because it's only going to get worse if we don't do something about it. So yeah, tell us about developing this software and getting everyone on the same server.
2: Sure. Well, I'll talk until you get sick of hearing me, okay? And then you tell me when to quit. But when I took over, the business grew leaps and bounds. My sister did an outstanding job getting us to a point where we were all clicking. But what became evident when I took over, it was right before the recession, was that we had a lot of operational people working here that moved up through the steps of our Lansing franchise. We had a few people hired from the outside, but one of the issues was the job outgrew the many of the people that we had here and like specific skill sets. If you take a look at like finance and, and, and marketing, there, we did not have industry standards. And so one of the first things I really saw that we were backfiring on was on that IT stuff, that Movers Secure One system with all the separate servers. Uh, it's not good. And it was continuously crashing. Uh, franchises were getting very frustrated with us, and, they, and rightfully so. We had to come up with something right away. So I, had, I hired Plant Moran to come in and take a look. At this point, the recession's kicking in. Moves are going down. Oh, we also had an internet site. Found out later that that our internet was crashing. It had an 80% fail rate. So it either locked up on people or it sent them in loops that they just got off. Little did we know that people were changing the technology of how they wanted to reach us. So they weren't using the phone as much as they were emailing at that time. Now they're texting more. And so there was a failure there. The recession is starting. Failures with our computers. So I had Plant Moran come in, about $40,000 project, which is a big chunk of our money. And I just assess our people, assess our processes, assess our hardware. And I said, look, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed here. So I don't want, just give me what it is. Don't split the baby. I want to know exactly what it is. And he said, okay, how about if we give you a grade? Perfect. I get grades. So he comes back in about six weeks, sits down. His name is John Novis, young guy, glasses, white button down shirt. And he goes, your people, I give you an F. (laughs) He goes, because they're nice people, but they don't know what they're doing. You're following no system standards whatsoever. Uh, Your process is I give you an F. You don't even have a firewall set up. For the life of us, we don't know why this system hasn't completely crashed or somebody hasn't taken you down. And your equipment, I give you an F. It's like, wow. And he goes, Do you realize that you've got a $60,000 software package sitting on the floor of your IT room? It's been there for three months. I said, No. Do you realize you're using pirated software? No. (laughs) He goes, Yep. And he slides the thing over and he just looks at me. And I went, Oh, well, this makes it easy. I will fire them and I'll just hire new IT people because we're going to die here. And he goes, Oh, no. You can't do that. You hire IT people to come in here. No one knows how this stuff works. This is a bowl of spaghetti. There's no code, there's no standards. You have to hire people to work next to the people you're gonna fire for probably three months to hand this thing off. So that's what we did. It's like fixing up our old house in Ishpeming. I thought, you know what, I put new windows in the house, the house is gonna look beautiful. Well, it's like you bring new IT in and the rest of the business looks like shit. <laughs> so I systematically had to go from department to department to do this. Now we, we're in the middle of a recession. But one thing we found out was they said your fall off rate on your internet is 80%. You're losing thousands of customers a week. Not the fault of the franchises. We never trained the franchises how to do that. Some of the franchises were good at it. Some of them didn't know how to do it. So I hired another company. What they did is how much damage was done. So what they did is they took all those emails that were coming to us and were able to gather those and send them back an email from us stating, why did you drop off? What happened? And they screamed loud and clear, tens of thousands of customers that you suck. Your company sucks. We would never use you. You never called us back. And this is understand right in the middle of the recession. I went to my office and I went, this is awesome. This is good. I had brought some of my executives in. They go, why is this good? And I said, because we suck. We can fix that. I can't fix the economy. But if we're losing this many people because we suck, let's suck less. We're not going to be great in a week or a month, but we can suck less. Okay. Yeah, let's suck less. So let's put some training together. Let's figure out what's going on here. And let's uh, start shoring up our websites. So by this time, we had the new IT people in and, and we started working on that. We started working on our own issues that we had in our corporate office.
1: Well, how about the IT people that you said you're going to have to let go after three months? Did they know that you're going to let them go? The head of IT
2: did know. Okay. But he told me, he asked, he says, is there any way you can put me somewhere else? And I just said, I can't. I said, it's beyond IT. I said, your lack of at least communicating to me that we are having issues. We have a communication issue problem more than an IT problem. The rest of the IT people, I had the new person say, you were going to tell me they could be wildly successful. They just didn't have a leader. I don't know. So what I did do is the old IT guy that I had was awesome. He helped out the new IT person. I told him, if you stay for three months, I'm going to severance you out. I severanced him out six months of his pay. After about three weeks, a new IT person said, you can let him go. I know where I am. And so I still severanced him out the money. I also gave him a letter of recommendation. good guy. It was the job out him. He wasn't you know what I mean it was just over his head, and he did some good things,
1: so yeah, I appreciate you uh becoming a patreon,
2: yeah, thank you, man. I've been listening to your show for in the last couple of years. I always listen to like my workout. I like how you like really dive in and just asking like the tip of questions like, okay, tell me more, what was the challenges? How would you overcome it?
1: Cool, yeah, no, I appreciate it. so why do you want to become a patreon?
2: I just yeah, I just want to support you, man.
1: Any feedback you have for me to try to get more members? Because it'll help you and other people, the more members I can get. I
2: didn't know what the pricing was. I just kind of glanced at it in such a amount that people, it's like a Netflix model. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, if I like check it once a month, it's still, you know, it's adding value. But I think it's kind of like saying, guys, it's only like, you know, it's only three cups of coffee. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I mean, honestly, you could even think when I think about it now, when you're saying 2004, 2005, you probably even outgrew yourself as far as thinking wise. I mean, for me, if I'm in your position, you're like, dude, when you got started, you even said in the beginning, you just had a truck, right? And you're moving stuff. Yeah. And you're like, now you've got so many franchises and all these headaches. You're like, how hard could it be? I mean, it's just a moving company. But then you start talking about these little technical things that you don't think of, I would think at the time, obviously, or else you would have fixed it, right? I mean, so it's weird just to think about, I'm like, oh, it's, this is a moving company? Like, How hard could this be? But then you're talking about this and this business. Any business can run into this, not even just a moving company or any other type of company that's doing some type of franchises. You got to think about these things now that we're learning from you.
2: Oh, my gosh. It's getting bigger and bigger. And I had to let a few more of our executives go for the same reasons. But I sat them down and said, you know, I would let myself go if I didn't own the company. it outgrew me too. So it's not just you. I mean, if there was another CEO, they'd look at me, I'd probably be the first one to go. But I knew the importance of taking care of this company, putting the right people in place and slowly growing. The franchises were beside themselves, God bless them. They stuck with us during this. And inwardly at our corporate office, they saw a lot of changes being made and they called and they thanked me for it. And I went, well, wait on your thank yous because I'm turning this outward. I'm looking at you guys next because there's some things that need to be straightened out. And so that's when I had to tell them that, you know what, we have to go after your infrastructure, your equipment, the way that you do business. Now, stream factor's high. That's when at our annual meeting, I had them all there and I made a simple drawing. I said, I started out with, I I stole this line. I saw it in an IFA annual meeting I was at. A guy started his, his talk off with a quote, Ships are safe in port, but that's not what ships were built for. And I went, oh shit, that's good. That is really good. I wrote that down and I went, that's what this business is. We're a ship in port. We got to get out in deep blue water, man. That's where action happens. We can't stay here and cover up during the recession. We got to get these new computers. I know we're making less money, but we are going to grab more of that less moving going out. So during this recession storm, and remember where it started, started with the debacle of the mortgage
1: Right. You're the first indicator because people are moving into new houses doing this. So yeah, you're right at the forefront of it.
2: Tied right into that. Another thing too, I'll just mention this. I found my faith. I found God during all this. I would pray over these things. Understand I'm from Northern Michigan University College with a geography degree. And so I'm way over my head. These are things I prayed about and good things happened. I would just systematically go through this process of fixing things as they come. And so I, I'm sitting up there talking with all these angry franchises and I just said, we can't stay here. We can't stay in this place. There's a lot of businesses that are shutting down or they're taking cover and waiting for the recession to go away. And then they're going to start doing business as usual. We're putting our boots and our car hearts on and we're getting out in this storm. I don't know how many of you are going to be around in the next couple of years, but we're cutting the useless barrels off of this boat. We're rolling them into the ocean. We're getting, this, we're getting our boat out there and we're going to find it. And during all this, you have to understand is Movers Who Care 2 is being built. And we're putting patchworks on Movers Who Care 1 so it doesn't keep breaking down. So imagine being in a storm, bailing out one boat while you're building another one right next to it. That's exactly what it was. So now the franchisees are pulled into this adventure. And that's when I went and I just told them that we're taking this boat out. Some of you are on the boat with us. I appreciate that. There's some of you swimming after our boat. We will wait for you and get you on the boat some of you were out in front of the boat swimming around. Don't get out too far because we might change direction. And some of you are screaming like little babies on the shoreline. And you got about two days to jump in and start swimming after because we're leaving. We're not staying the way we are. You know what? The franchisees appreciated that talk. Did have a few that tried to start an association to stop me. They were angry, but they weren't.
1: Was your family a part of it? any of that? Oh no, they're all for me. Yeah, I was just making sure. (laughs) Yeah, that's a
2: good question. But in the end, we had some solid franchisees. My family was for me, most of it. But our solid franchisees looked at the ones on the shore and just said, either jump in or shut up. So we moved on and a few of them, the association got squashed. They started seeing that some of the bad decisions that we made at our corporate office, we lived with them too. I mean, we had our own franchises. We had corporate stores out in California at that time. I mean, we also got bloody lips during this process too.
1: Well, so what did you actually do to like cut expenses or grow revenue during this point in time? Because obviously that's what you need to do one or two. So any suggestions on what you did? And maybe if we go through a recession and we have hopefully a company as large as yours, like things we can look at to cut or to survive.
2: The key is to be aggressive. The key is like, I think during those recession, we spent the money. We had little money because you understand I let about 17 people go in about a one month period. Not because we could afford them, but I redid the org charts and I just went, man, these I don't know what these people do.
1: And how many people were working? So what was the percentage?
2: We went from 78 down to 52.
1: Okay, yeah, significant
2: So I went through that process. I had another company come in to make sure I was paying properly. I was finding out I had people working that were doing the work of three people working for me. Then I had some people walking around, no one did, knew what the hell they did.
1: They were one of the 17. Yeah,
2: or the job just didn't make any sense anymore. What job classification there was, it would, didn't even really use it. We had one guy here, he basically just made Christmas cards you know, and it was like, (laughs) consent faxes. It was just like, what else? Wait, 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 what else do you do? It's just, it happens. So when you build a business so fast that some of these things just go sideways. And so it was bringing that all back, making sure they're all getting paid properly, but it's like, what can we fix? We can't fix the recession. Two things that we can fix. Number one, let's fix those websites. So we're gathering those leads coming in. And the other one was who's answering our phones at these franchises. Because before the recession, they were order takers. There were so many people moving. remember? Everyone had a mortgage. I mean, everyone was buying houses beyond what they could afford. Everyone was using a mover. And so the people that were answering the phones at the local franchises were just order takers. But when the recession hit, customers were calling, going, did you realize that you're the most expensive mover that I've called? Our customer service reps didn't know how to answer that. We're actually not. If you break down everything that they get, we're the best value, hands down. They didn't know how to answer that. So it's like, okay, let's find the profile of what a good CSR is, and then let's have our CSRs from across the country do a profile. What's a CSR? A customer service rep. They're the ones to answer the phones. So we found out we had people that were CSRs, customer service reps that were introverts. They didn't know how to sell. They didn't want to know to sell. So what we had to do is we had to retrain or, in some cases, move them into other places of the business, and we had the franchisees start using the profile system to hire new CSRs. We also broke down our whole sales process from the moment somebody calls on the phone until the moment the movers shake hands and leave a happy customer. We got a sheet of paper. Actually, it went. It was 12 feet long, about every single spot that we talked to a customer, every process that we move, and you find the bottlenecks in that. And there's a, a guy named Jim Ryerson that we hired him to show us this. And it was an aha moment for us because not only did we find that our CSRs, Many of them were introverts that could not sell on the phone, but there was many other parts in the process that we were dropping, that we were losing a customer or we were losing the quality of work that we do. And we circled those and we put training around every one of those. And the important thing, Austin, doing this during a recession, it not only helped our business, but it's important that your employees, your franchisees are working on something to better themselves, that they're going home Not looking at, oh, the recession's keeping me from making a living. I'm going to lose my business. No, we're working on something that's going to make us better. I found out we were losing more business from the 80% drop-off than we were from the recession. So that's when I said, hey, everybody, let's suck less. Let's start getting these leads in. Let's put them in. And we're going to take a look at every franchise and see where we're dropping the ball during our whole process, the whole move process. And we just started getting better at that. I think just as important is knowing that your future is in your hands. It's not in the hands of the recession. And so 07, we were down about 15%. percent '08 we were down about 10%. That way forward, we've been growing positive the last, this will be our 11th year in a row that we've had record growth. Customer satisfaction right now is just shy of 97%. For a moving company, that's pretty good. But I think the key is look in the mirror. Don't look out the window when things are going bad. What I mean by that is look at yourself. What can you do better? Are you the best that you can be? And when things are going to hell in a handbasket, don't look out the window and go, oh, it's the economy. I can't find employees. The price of gas. It's like you don't have control over many of those things, but know the things you do have control over. For instance, why don't you have employees? Maybe you suck. Maybe they don't want to work for you. Maybe there's no adventure in their jobs. Maybe there's no mobility. Look in the mirror and figure out how you can make those things better. Right now, for our frontline staff, we've spent tens of thousands of dollars putting together a resume building kit for our frontline people. Our goal is just to make you better. I hope that our frontline people stay with us. 68% of our managers system-wide started out on the trucks or the phones. That's awesome. 42% of our franchisees started out on the trucks or the phones. Many of them don't have college educations. Many of them are millionaires. Many of them have college-educated people working for them in finance and IT and HR and marketing. And so let's not look at these as throwaway people. Let's look at them as these are possible franchisees. And if they do leave, let's make sure that they built a resume that they can take and use and get a job somewhere else. And I tell them that as a mover, you are gonna learn to manage people, time, money, and equipment. We're gonna build a resume around that. Our goal is to make you a driver. Our goal is to get you into maybe it's doing estimates. Maybe it's working on commercial moves. Build your career and move up, but that's up to you. It's not up to us. We don't owe you anything. We're giving you an opportunity, but you have to take it. We have found that a lot of our frontline people have moved up in the company. Randy Shack and my president, and I were sitting around a couple years ago. and I'm thinking, I wonder what our frontline people are doing from 15 years ago. And we thought, well, let's get Don Kroger in from marketing. Let's have her throw something on social media and see if we can find some of these people. Tim Hudson, who is a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, is in the Baseball Hall of Fame, was a mover of ours at one time. We have a Harlem Globetrotter that was a mover of ours at one time. We've got cops, teachers, CPAs, doctors, bankers. And we went out, took all this fancy equipment with Joe Barnhart, who's sitting right here helping me with all this. And we interviewed them. What did you learn from Two Man Truck that helped you in the job that you have now? Amazing answers that we got. And we'd share those with the frontline people. Say, look, this is not a dead-end job. So there's ways of keeping employees. There's ways of gathering more customers even though there's less in the industry. Look at the things that you can control and get damn good at those things and stop worrying about the things you can't control.
1: Well, looking back, even when it kind of sounds like the recession was the hardest part, of your growth over these last almost 40 years now. But it seems like one thing that you kept saying over and over that was seemed to help a lot was that you'd bring outside help to come evaluate your company. So do you have any tips or suggestions on that? Because again, having a third party or somebody else who's not in there and some guy who's going to give it to you straight and give you three Fs, sounds like it worked for you. So what are your suggestions on that?
2: It did. The funny part is John Nobis for Plant Moran is now my CEO.
1: <laughs> nice. What grade do you give him as CEO? A he's
2: so smart he's a good solid man he's young he's only 40 years old my president's only 40 years old so we got a lot of young people at work here but yeah it do need a set of eyes you know you should be looking at your industry we're in two industries we're in the trucking industry and we're in the franchise industries so we're actually in two industries we're heavily involved with the you know american movers and warehouseman's association we're heavily involved in the international franchise association we go to these meetings we learn from our peers we share information with them. But also like our marketing people, they go to their own industry meetings specifically. Our HR, they go to their own meetings. They get their own journals. They belong to their own associations. You have to plug your people in. Again, that's part of the adventure. I've seen it a lot in all industries where leaders and companies they only get as smart as the leader because they hold a glass ceiling over everybody. Everything has to cross their desk. That's a huge mistake. So what you need to do once your company gets big enough is expand it, put the weight on that shoulders. I see a lot of, especially my age, I'm running into a lot of CEOs that are exhausted. They're burned out. It's like, I wouldn't be here if I had to carry all that load on my shoulders for this long. So spread the load. And then all of a sudden, these executives come back, not with problems, but with solutions and suggestions of doing things better. That keeps you from getting burned out. And then you're trying new things and new ways of doing things. In the way that we do business, as you know, Austin, it's just getting fat. It's changing. The evolution is going faster and quicker. We have more industry disruptors than we've ever had before. In moving, for instance, we have disruptors in moving that they don't even have trucks. They don't even have employees, but they become direct competitors of ours. I mean, where were they five years ago? So every industry has those. And so to stay, you'll be eaten alive. I don't care what industry you're in. If you don't stay on top of that, I mean, why is GM so interested in Lyft? You know, Take a look at the marriages of businesses going around. They're trying to keep themselves from getting gobbled up by something new and different. We used to have out there, there'd be lobbyists for these different industries protecting these industries. And that's kind of going away. So you have to be quicker, smarter on your feet more nimble to making changes and maneuvering how you interact with your customers. and you can't do that if you're the one that's just the yes man or the yes woman in your business. You need to have a team of ass kickers that bring ideas to you. You know, the SWOT analysis,
1: those are real. Those are something the SWOT analysis has been around for ages. Can you talk about what the SWOT analysis is and what it might be for your company? Basically, it's... Yeah, strength, weakness,
2: opportunity, threat. You know, what are some of the things that you're good at? What are the things you're not good at? And uh, what are the things that you need to work on? What's a threat? You just break that up and then you take a look at it. One of our sweet spots, our good thing, is the relationship we have with our franchisees is solid. I mean, we talk with them continuously. We know what their issues are, where their threats are. We know what their strengths are, opportunities and threats, and that's what the SWOT is. If you just make a a cross right in the middle of a piece of paper, you will have them. You put those in each quadrant. But a threat for us is, what about these lead aggregators, for instance? They get to people that are moving before we can. Then what they do is they corral that lead and then they sell it to the highest bidder. So they don't have trucks. They don't have employees. All they're doing is they're taking their cut out of something they're really not even doing. It doesn't work well for the customer because it's just going to the highest bidder. So we have to think of ways to stay in front of them you look at google some of these companies are getting so large that they can take you down if they say well we don't like the way you're marketing sort of taking you off google i mean off google search and generalizing that but that's basically what can happen so again you look at brother john and i first starting out how important those referrals are that's what i tell our franchisees let's get to these people let's have a high customer satisfaction. Let's get it so these people, you know, email us directly. They're not using a search engine to find us. They're just put us in. Different things that we have to do. And so all industries have their strengths, their weaknesses, and their opportunities and threats. So it's really good to break that down and take a look at that.
1: So what do you see as your threat going forward, and how you're going to be able to handle that?
2: Uh, one of the threats is the seasonality of our business you know, we do, it's probably 60% of our moving, you know, from June, July and half of August. So you've got everyone out there doing everything that they possibly can. I call it the smelt run for the Midwesterners that know what smelt are. Smelt are little tiny fish that run up the rivers in the springtime. And you net them up as they come in. They don't come one or two at a time. They come all at once. And so I tell the franchisees, franchisees love and hate my analogies, but it's a smelt run. They all want to be moved at the same time. It's right after school gets out, everyone's moving. And so we're trying to grab as many of these as we can. When you get into the winter, there's a lot less moving going on because people are, families have their kids in school, get to the northern states. If people can't see the foundation because they're buried in snow or they can't see the yard, chances are they're going to wait till spring. So we have to think of ways filling those voids in the winter to keep our really good employees. You know, a lot of that is doing the final mile deliveries, it's doing a lot more commercial moving that's not so seasonal. You know doing that kind of thing to try to fill those voids
1: and so i guess looking back again you sound like the recession was kind of the hardest part if we're looking backwards i mean is there anything else that maybe we could have learned from some of the hardest experiences that you've gone through because again that obviously sounded difficult having to deal with the software upgrades and all that other stuff all within that period but is there anything else that we could learn from because i always find kind of unfortunately the negative experiences that we can learn from usually are the most helpful You
2: know what, do the right thing. And that's where my newfound faith is, is as a leader, put yourself second behind your employees, behind your franchisees, try to make them better. The first thing you wanna do when things like the recession hit, there's certain things you cut out, right? Yeah, we'd have a big fancy Christmas party that costs thousands of dollars.
1: Well, that's because your guy who made the Christmas cards probably booked it. Yeah. <laughs> Good one. Yeah. Austin
2: shoots and scores. We would take big buses to the Tiger games. And, you know, these things cost tens of thousands of dollars. Those are the barrels I'm talking about. Cut those and roll them off the boat. Those aren't going to happen anymore. Now we're going to play cornhole with a case of beer for a picnic, okay? Christmas parties are going to be here at the office. But explain to them, these are the things that we're cutting, but I'm not cutting your pay. Even during the recession, even though we diminished 15% in business, we still bonus people out. I had people come in my office in tears. How could you possibly give us a bonus? We know you're not making money. It's because you're worth it. Show that, that they're worth it. Making sure that you take care of the people that are taking care of the business. I think another big mistake that we make, and it's difficult, but there's people that have been in our business for a long time. Uh, Some of your listeners have employees have been there for a long time. They still have to produce. What I'm finding is when I talk with business owners that struggle, they're sitting on employees they've had for a really long time. They're just showing they're turning the wheel. They're not bringing new ideas in. They're not up on the latest, greatest things. In the back of our mind, they're like, well, they were with me for a long time. I got to take care of them. I'm sorry, but that doesn't cut it. You're doing a disservice to your customer. You're doing a disservice to the rest of your hardworking employees. You're doing a disservice to that employee. If they are just going through the day to day, God has something for all of us to do. And if it's somebody that's just warming a seat at the office, not staying there because they're not causing any problems, but they've been here for 20 years. You got to start looking at those and say, I've got to let this person go. God's got another plan for them, but it's not here. And I got to bring somebody else in. It's going to fire this place up. It's going to give us life. It's going to give us ideas that I can't think of myself. So we really have to take a look at those employees and severance them out, take care of them. During the recession, we were down, we had $500,000 cash. That was it. People think, well, that's a lot of money. No, it's not. It's not a lot of money when you got so many bills going out. Out of that 500, I severanced out. It was put on my heart to severance out. By the time I severanced everybody out, I severanced out $260,000 out of that 500. I belonged to YPO at the time. YPO is Young Presidents Organization. It's a forum of business people. And I told them what I did, and they said, you are effing nuts. But they used the real word. (laughs) They said, you're going to lose your company. And I went, then so be it. These people worked their asses off. The business outgrew them. And they said, you're not going to make up for that. We don't even know how bad this recession is going to get. And I said, I don't care, but they also need to be taken care of. They also won't have a job during the recession. What happened, Austin, is I brought in three new executives, not the same time, but over about a six-month period. We went through all of our agreements that we had with all of our vendors. And some of the agreements were solid and good. And we have vendors that we've had forever that have taken great care of us. And I would call them strategic partners. We had some that were screwing us over so bad. And why? Because we didn't know any better. We weren't business people starting out. And all the ones that, that we could legally break or rewrite we did, saved us over $400,000 a year. So I went back to my YPO group. and I said, this is how God works in the business. I did the right thing. I took care of those people that took care of the business. In turn, new people came in And they found $150,000 more than what I paid them off. And I am actually writing a book in the process of it right now of talking about these stories of don't just look at the dollars, take care of people, take care of the customers and good things will happen. And I know it sounds kind of out there a little bit like I'm in Disneyland business, but it's the truth and has worked and we're a living example of it.
1: Well, yeah, no, thank you for hitting on that at the end. Cause that's basically kind of what you said in the beginning, you wanted to cover that you didn't have that necessary financial background and then taking care of people. Not that you were even thinking this at the time, but if you're actually giving them like severance and whatnot, I mean, they're eventually going to have to move and it, having someone like, Oh, I used to work there and obviously they had to make cuts, but at least they did something. And then they can actually say something to their friends, like, who do you recommend for moving? So, I mean, I'm sure that could have been beneficial as well. But again, just just making sure that you did the best you could, I guess, to take care of them during that time. Austin is tough sitting in and I would just sit in one-on-one when I had to let some of these people go. 70% of them
2: said, I knew this was coming. I knew this job was too big for me. 70% of them told me that they were just being honest. Several of them, Lansing's not a big city. And I know a lot of the business people here. A lot of them, I helped get them new jobs. And not only did I say, am I going to write you a letter of recommendation? Here's my personal cell number. Give this to anyone that you're interviewing with and have them call me on the spot. And it's just going the extra yard for some of these people. And I still have a beer with a couple of them every now and then. Uh, We're still friends. Some of them, not so much.
1: (laughs) It's understandable. I mean, some people are going to take it differently than others, but I think, you know, because they're emotionally involved and attached. But again, you're doing them a disservice if you're keeping them there and they're not doing anything and not enjoying their life. Maybe they don't even realize that. So it's kind of taking it from both sides there. Well, we appreciate you coming on. In closing, is there any last thoughts that you want to leave everyone with and then Also, if you can tell everyone to email or best way to reach you for saying thank you for doing this actual interview.
2: Well, I think the main part for me is is my true north. And when I found, because all of your decisions have to be based on something, I try to as best I can to make godly decisions that has helped me through this not being educated in this job that I've had but is is help me through it help me get the right resources it's also make the place that you work make it fun make it adventurous share the love with people and I mean by that is bonus them if you can give them rope to make not all people they have to prove themselves but to make decisions so they can see that that was my idea I'm gonna see it through let people be part of the adventure and don't put all the weight on your own shoulders by giving people adventure, you're also getting the weight off of your shoulders a bit and understand that you're building something that should really outlast you. Don't tie the successes and failures of the business to you and be willing to give up some of those reins for the good of the business and your employees and have fun with it. I mean, it's a blessing that, that we have these businesses. It's fun to grow them, and but treat them like their own entity, their own baby and have fun doing it.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's an important point that you're saying there too at the end, because actually we had someone on, um, it's episode 126 with Janine Jarman, which she is a, has her own salon in LA and New York. And at the end, she is basically saying exactly what you're saying here. It's like, at the end of the day, you, we're here to make money because we want to have freedom to kind of do what we want. Or at least that's what I want. I think that's what a lot of people listening want. But also at the end of the day, you can have fun. That's an important point. Even if you're not making money or whatever, if at least you're having fun and enjoying yourself, that's something to you know appreciate as well. So, And if someone wanted to say, thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? Brig, B R I G dot sorber,
2: S O R B E R, at two men dot com or two men in truck dot com. Be more than happy to take those emails and discuss anything further.
1: Maybe some potential franchisees. Hey,
2: I hope. <laughs> there
1: you go. All right. Well, thank you again, Brig, for doing the interview here. Thanks, Austin. It's been a pleasure. You know what I'm in the mood for right now? That's right. More service based interviews. If you're in the mood too, then check out these episodes where we talk about how to service your customer. Episode 197 with two maids and a mop, not to be confused with two girls in a cup. Episode 89 with the author Incubator, that's a fan favorite. Or episode 140 with Barbecue Smokehouse. And if we've already filled your passion bucket with plenty of episodes, well, why don't you join us on a group call and meet some of our guests? All you have to do is become a Patreon member. I lead the calls and you get to ask the questions. So join us. Go to millionaire-interviews.com and sign up right now. And if you have any questions about the membership, feel free to message me on Pornhub. My username is bizboy69. That's bizboi 69 And as long as you're a Patreon member, I promise to respond to all your messages instantly. So become a member today.